You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW Talknet. Hi, everyone. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update on social media. Thanks, as always, for joining us. A lot to talk about this week. Durham issued another indictment. Should Hillary Clinton be nervous? I'll talk about that. New CRT documents to talk about. Um, You can see uh, that this issue ain't going away. Uh, Plus, uh, speaking of an issue that refuses to go away, which is January 6th and the government abuse of American citizens using January 6th as a pretext. I've got a major development in a court case we have in that area to talk about with you as well. First up, though, is the big news this week. I guess the big news this week is the uh, the victory in Virginia for uh, Governor-elect Youngkin. But uh, the more important legal news is the filing of an indictment, the arrest of a man and his federal indictment by John Durham, who's special counsel. Uh, and the man's name is Igor Tanchenko. He's a foreign national. He's a Russian. He lives here in the United States. And he was arrested the other day. And he was arrested for lying to the FBI about the nature of the work and what, who he was talking to and how he came about um, information that was used in the Steele dossier to smear Trump. Danchenko is Hillary's guy. How is he Hillary's guy? He worked for Christopher Steele and helped create the so-called dossier. And the report, uh, or I should say the indictment, which is here, and I encourage you to review it, goes through quite uh, deliberately how Tanchenko would get a snippet of information and muck it up or change it or make it false. For instance, uh, his key contact, of course, was a Hillary Clinton supporter, a volunteer at her campaign, previously had been an official member of her, her earlier campaigns, and, uh, and he also worked for the Russians. So you had an American working for the Russians, working with a Russian who's working for a British guy, who's working for the Clinton operation, Fusion GPS, who's working for Clinton's campaign and the Democratic National Committee. And by the way, Christopher Steele is also being paid by the FBI at the same time. That's the way it worked in Obama land. And um, he would, uh, for instance, get information and say uh, about uh, a, um, well, for instance, he went to Moscow. He went to Moscow with this uh, Clinton buddy, crony, and uh, they went and visited the Moscow hotel. And they learned that Donald Trump had once visited that hotel. So what Danchenko did was he took that factoid and added the uh, salacious sex allegations, falsely attaching it to that factoid. He also denied speaking, more or less, to this uh, Clinton operative, volunteer, who supposedly said that, oh, Hillary didn't know anything about what I was doing. But of course, it really didn't matter since she was paying Tanchenko. And he denied repeatedly to the FBI, according to this indictment, that um, he talked to this Clinton operative about uh, the dossier. And what uh, Durham says in the indictment is, look, look, if, if the FBI had known this, of course, they should have known it, uh, they would have been able, if they, they had known that this, F, this uh, Clinton operative 
uh, was indeed a source for this Russian, uh, they would have been able to kind of figure out uh, more succinct, more uh, quickly, uh, whether this dossier was valid or not. And of course, Durham once again, um, or further confirmed that the, he was unable to confirm pretty much anything of importance in the dossier, which was a smear operation against President Trump. So it's a big deal in the sense that the, the author of the dossier, or a key asp, uh, the, one of the key guys who provided information allegedly about the dossier, A, was a Russian, uh, and Mr. Uh, Durham's um, indictment strongly suggests he's a Russian agent, although he doesn't come out and say it. And uh, B, uh, it was a lie. So you've got official confirmation through this indictment, at least. It's the position of the United States government that the dossier's a big lie. And it's a lie generated by the Clinton campaign, the Democratic National Committee. Now, recall uh, Mr. Sussman, who is Hillary Clinton's campaign lawyer, also was indicted for lying to the FBI. And then you had uh, the lawyer, whose name I, uh, Mr. Kleinsmith, I guess that's his name. Uh, he was the FBI lawyer who messed with the uh, FISA warrants uh, to make it seem like Carter Page was a bad guy when, in fact, he was a patriot. And uh, he pled guilty, got no jail time, or I don't think any, any notable jail time, as I recall. Uh, and so this material also that Donchenko is being indicted over, or at least the dossier, that he manufactured at a whole cloth, it looks like, more or less, uh, essentially just ended up directly in the FISA warrants that were used on to spy on Carter Page and, and the Trump team generally. So this whole spy operation was the result of a big lie orchestrated by the Clinton operation. And what I would highlight is it's not just the Clinton operation. The FBI knew about Danchenko's lack of credibility four years ago, 2017. I mean, they were questioning, he, he should have been indicted four years ago. But the FBI at the time uh, was, um, I guess it was run at one point by Comey and then by McCabe and then by Ray. They were just desperate to get Trump. So they weren't going to go after uh, and blow up the dossier. Mueller wasn't going to blow up his dossier by, go, by highlighting the fact that it was a big lie and they knew it was and there were crimes committed in the investigation of it. Uh, uh, by the liars in the Clinton operation. They weren't going to blow the whistle on that. So the crime is, in, a, in my view, the crime is even worse than what the indictment's about because the indictment just focuses on the guy, Igor Danchenko. It doesn't focus on those who knew he was lying and yet pretended what he said was true. So that, to me, is the big question. Is Durham going to go after people in the FBI and elsewhere? who ran with this despite knowing it was true. And I was on Fox today, and I made the point. I said, you know, uh, look, in politics, you, you say things about your opponent, and oftentimes it's lies. That's what happens in politics, and you kind of understand it. It's not appropriate. It's not right, but that's, that you understand. But when you get the FBI involved, and you say, to, you knowingly say these lies to the FBI, there's, there's the problem, and that was Danchenko's problem. But on the other hand, if I'm Danchenko, I'd be like, well, you know, the, or Christopher Steele, assuming that he gets, I don't know if he'll get indicted, 
eventually on this. You know, my, uh, and, <laughs> and I'm the defense attorney. I'm going to say, oh, well, how I'm lying to the FBI. I, the FBI, they all knew what I was doing. They're my co-conspirators. And that's the dirty little secret to the Durham investigation, is that the FBI at the time was also paying Christopher Steele in 2016, who was paying Donjenko to make up the lies. And they all knew Steele was a bad guy. They fired him as an informant, yet they tried to bring him back in. And the reason the FBI was even talking about Tanchenko and trying to run the dossier down was because they were desperate to get Trump. So, you know, the crimes involved uh, in the dossier, I think, are readily apparent. And uh, the other big deal here, which is uh, Durham is yet to touch, and I hope he, uh, find, I hope he does, is that the other part of the crime is that the FBI and government officials knew there were lies and continued uh, to maliciously prosecute and target Trump anyway and spy on him anyway and people, uh, and people close to him like Carter Page. So that's the story. Now the question I have is when is Hillary Clinton going to be questioned by Durham? How many Hillary Clinton campaign operatives have to be indicted if one of her top lawyers, her campaign's top lawyers, was indicted? Denchenko, uh, I guess, you know, two rungs away from her, two or three rungs away from her. What did she know and when did she know about the dossier? Huh? Has Dora asked her that? You know, I checked, last time I checked uh, congressional testimony on this issue, I think Glenn Sampson, who runs Fusion GPS, was being questioned on what he told the campaign or whatever about the dossier. And I think what he was told Hillary Clinton about that, and she, he refused to say. So that to me is a key question. Why, why hasn't Hillary Clinton been questioned? I'm assuming she hasn't been questioned. Uh, and Durham should take those next steps. So this is just another step forward in highlighting the criminal campaign against Trump. And it highlights how it was this unholy alliance between corrupt FBI officials and investigators the corrupt Justice Department, the corrupt Mueller operation, and uh, Hillary Clinton's operatives at Fusion GPS. We already have an indictment of the top campaign lawyer, or one of two of the top campaign lawyers at the firm that hired Fusion GPS. We have the key source, the key uh, fiction writer for the dossier indicted for lying to the FBI about where he was getting the details and who he was talking to about the dossier uh, allegations, which were obviously fraudulent. So what next? What about Hillary? What about those who signed on to the FISA warrants? Extraordinary FISA warrants targeting an incoming president and then the president of the United States. Extraordinary. So this, that's what happened. And so, and just so you know, Judicial Watch has uncovered much of what we know about the corruption related to the FISA warrants. You know, Nunes got the ball rolling on this. Devin Nunes, who was the, uh, he's, he was chairman of the Intelligence Committee then, now he's ranking member. Uh, but Judicial Watch uncovered that Steele was being paid by uh, the FBI. He met with the FBI 13 times in 2016. 11 of those times he was paid. Uh, we uncovered how Bruce Orr, remember Bruce Orr and Nellie Orr over at the Justice Department, told the, told the FBI that, you know, look, they had, a, they had an axe to grind against Hillary. They were his, her political opponents, or his 
uh, her political supporters, excuse me, to the exact opposite. They had an axe to grind against Trump. They supported Hillary Clinton, which further undermined their credibility. And stuff wasn't checking out. We have the documents showing the stuff wasn't checking out. And plus, we got the FISA warrants declassified. First time in the history of man it's ever happened. So in many ways, Durham is like following our lead. Four years too late in many ways. Is it a day late and dollar short? I would suggest it is in some respects, so to be a little negative here. Because, you know, they, they tried, they, they hamstrung the, just, the, Clinton, uh, excuse me, the Trump presidency. They protected Hillary Clinton from being prosecuted for her corruption. Uh, they went after Trump with an abusive impeachment to, as part of this conspiracy against him. And frankly, the second impeachment was about the first one as well, despite them pretending to be about January 6th. It was just another pretext to harass Trump. And, it's, and it hasn't stopped. He's still being harassed by prosecutors, in my view. And having his rights violated six ways to Sunday. I'll say it once, and I'll say it again. Donald J. Trump is a crime victim. And this indictment proves it. So Judicial Watch has many, much litigation still going on on these issues. And, uh, and as, as I said, Durham is following our lead. So let's hope more comes uh, because uh, it can't come soon enough. So speaking of uh, the FBI, uh, as I said, the corruption continues. There's this targeting. The FBI just can't help themselves when it comes to going after the political opposition of the deep state. And in one, uh, January 6th, it was reported that Bank of America, in the least, had turned over banking records to the FBI of uh, anyone in the D.C. area. <coughs> so I'm in the D.C. area. So if I had, uh, the way I read the reports, that if I had uh, used my debit card, it could have been turned over to the FBI, even though I wasn't anywhere near uh, uh, the uh, the rally or anything else that happened. So all sorts of Americans were caught up in this dragnet, which is illegal. It's illegal under the law. The FBI can't just go around collecting records because they're, they feel like it. So we're trying to figure out what went on. We asked the FBI for the records. You know what they told us? We can't confirm or deny the records exist, which is bunk. That type of response is used to protect you know, top secret operations and war plans, national security related data, not like a typical law enforcement technique. Did you get, did you do a, did you do a subpoena or not? I mean, how's that a state secret? It's obviously a lie. And we filed a response to uh, the FBI in, um, in the federal court case we brought to get these records. We want to know about this uh, surveillance of, of, of American citizens' financial transactions. You know, I think it's interesting. There's all this, um, I, don't, I don't know what it, where it stands now in terms of the effort by the left to increase the IRS's power to observe your banking transactions or your banking activity generally. But I think back to so what the FBI just, you know, it looks like there was, they didn't need a subpoena and they just got the records. I don't know what went on. I mean, what already happened is bad enough. My point is, 
This is what we sued for. Any, all records of communications between the FBI and any financial institution, including but not limited to Bank of America, Citibank, Chase Manhattan, Bank Discover, and or American Express, in which the FBI sought transaction data for those financial institutions' debit and credit card account holders who made purchases in Washington, D.C., Maryland, and or Virginia on January 5th and 6th, 2021. And so what Judicial Watch says is they can't hide behind this I can't confirm or deny excuse. And we um, worked, for, first of all, that excuse is almost always blown out of the water if, it's, if they've confirmed or denied it elsewhere. And there was at least one other FOIA request where they confirmed that they might have records, but they wouldn't turn them over because of law enforcement related exemptions, which is a more straightforward Freedom of Information Act dispute. So A, that's the big deal. B, the second big deal is, if you're engaged in misconduct, you can't say, I can't confirm or deny to hide the misconduct from the American people. And that's what I want to focus on in our brief. This is what exactly they said, by the way, to the FBI. Please be advised that it is the FBI's policy to neither confirm nor deny the existence of any records which would disclose the existence or non-existence of non-public law enforcement techniques, procedures, and or guidelines. The acknowledgement that any such records exist or do not exist could reasonably be expected to risk circumvention of law. So the idea that the FBI can monitor your banking transactions is a secret law enforcement technique? Who are they kidding? Talk about corruption. That's what we deal with all the time at Judicial Watch. I'm surprised I'm able to you know, not just completely have my head explode sometimes dealing with these, these, this government lawlessness. And this was what we say. I'm going to read a bit from the brief because we had, we used the, um, uh, there was a former senior FBI official who's done this work before. He knows what the rules are in terms of gathering this type of information. And he gave us a declaration that we could give to the court to explain what was going on here with the FBI's gamesmanship. This is what we wrote. I'm going to read you a few paragraphs. In this case, the FBI appears to have conducted an improper broad sweep of financial records, not just to those persons it had reason to believe were involved in the events of January 6th, but many more Americans. Detailed media reports not only indicate the FBI sought financial records, but also set forth in detail the specific criteria and scope of the records obtained. And as described in the declaration of um, our uh, former FBI friend, such a broad sweep of financial records would be improper. Now, according to the FBI official's declaration, the former FBI official's declaration, the FBI has several legal avenues available to pursue private individuals' financial records, include obtaining a a federal grand jury subpoena, a search warrant, or a national security letter. And of course, at all times, they're supposed to follow the laws. And there are specific rules and regulations that implement those laws in the Justice Department called the Attorney General Guidelines or the Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide. All that was thrown out the window, it looks like. As we explained, or as as our, uh, our FBI official explained, 
a request by the FBI certain banks to voluntarily turn over to the FBI the private financial transaction data of any bank customer who happened to be in a certain broad geographical area on a certain date could be interpreted as an effort to circumvent protections under the law. That's being nice, isn't it? This is because, as set forth, as said by those Attorney General guidelines, the FBI may not collect and store intelligence information on an individual, especially when that individual is a U.S. citizen, without articulating reasonable suspicion that the individual was or is or about to be engaged in violation of federal law. So they can't go, go and look at the phone book of Washington, D.C. I guess I'm showing my age. There are no such things as no, no more hot phone books anymore, right? And just compile a, fi a file on everyone in the phone book. Well, that's what they did, it looks like, potentially, in, ga in gathering all this financial data of anyone who actually engaged in financial transactions on in or around to January 6th. They just can't keep a file on you without having some fair understanding that you may have committed a crime or could be a suspect or someone important to an investigation. A blanket sweep of all bank customer transactions in a certain area at a certain time does not meet the bare minimum reasonable suspicion threshold since a significant amount of data would logically include innocent and lawful transactions the FBI does not have a right to collect. As a result, a request by the FBI for voluntary cooperation by the banks would net information the FBI would not otherwise be able to legally obtain. If confirmed, the FBI's efforts would constitute an extra-constitutional workaround that potentially enabled inappropriate government surveillance of lawful activities. There you have it. That's the 1-6 investigation that needs to be done, and Judicial Watch is doing it. So as Pelosi continues to use 1-6 as a pretext to harass Trump supporters, and try to criminalize objections to the uh, way the elections were conducted in 2020, Judicial Watch steps into the gap to find out what the FBI was doing to spy on American citizens whose only crime was being a resident of the District of Columbia or Maryland and Virginia and engaging in a financial transaction. I mean, so to hear these leftists moan about January 6th while harassing and violating the core fundamental constitutional liberties and rights of citizens just gets my goat. This is why I love Judicial Watch, because we're in court fighting for this. The media ain't doing it. I don't know where the Republicans are. They don't even talk about it. A few do. They're the exceptions that prove the rule in terms of the leadership of Congress, both Republican and Democrat. I don't know what's worse, one party that targets the opposition or the other party that lets it happen without much objection. But this is why Judicial Watch is so important, because we step in irrespective of party. So I don't know how the court's going to rule here. 
Let me see what this filing is called. Plaintiff's memorandum points in opposition to motion for summary judgment. So I guess the government will reply to this, I think, and then uh, the court will rule. I don't know how long the court's going to take the rule. It's uh, before, I think it's before Judge Lamberth, so we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. So if anything happens, I'll let you know. Uh, but in the meantime, you can read this material, and I encourage you to do it and to share it and educate yourself and your fellow Americans about what we're doing here. Because what went on and is going on related to January 6 makes what went on in January 6 really seem inconsequential because it's the, the governmental abuse using January 6 as a pretext that's the big issue now. So the... Um, as I said earlier, the big news this week was the election of um, pres uh, excuse me, Governor-elect Youngkin in New Jersey. And okay, now I'm conflating the states. Youngkin won in Virginia, uh, and in Virginia, Loudoun County uh, and and the state generally was aflame because of uh, CRT and extremist transgender activism uh, that was, was raised safety concerns about the schools and the CRT raised uh, objections by parents who didn't want their kids being called racist or being told America was uh, is the worst place since Nazi Germany. Ameri Americans and parents in, in Loudoun County and frankly all over the country don't want politics in the school and they don't want commie politics in the school if I could be blunt. This repackaged Marxism, you call it whatever you want, diversity, equity training, cultural responsive training, anti-racism, it's all code. It's not even code. It's just other names for uh, critical race theory and repackaged Marxism. And Judicial Watch got a boatload of documents from Montgomery County. Now, Montgomery County is the county just northwest of Washington, D.C., so you know, across the river to the west is Virginia, and to the north and the west and the east is, and I guess south, is Maryland. It goes around the diamond there. I call it the capital is shaped like a diamond, at least part of it. And so immediately north is Montgomery County, which, you know, Loudoun County is one of the richest counties in the, in the country because of its proximity to Washington, D.C., and the seat of government. Uh, and Montgomery County is similarly prosperous. Uh, but it's controlled by the left, which is fine. I mean, that's the way politics is locally here. But, you know, they can't, in my view, abuse the rule of law, abuse our children with this racist claptrap. And we've got these really outrageous documents uh, talking about restorative justice and, and psychoeducation, which is more about uh, critical race theory and uh, getting kids to be turned into Marxists than anything else. And I'll read you some of the materials that we got. We received two sets of new records related to the teaching critical race theory in Montgomery County Public Schools, which is immediately to the north of D.C., but it's also the biggest county school system, school district in, in the Maryland, in the state of Maryland. So it's a, it's a, big, it's a big school district. So the headline is, they had a there's this far-left book called Anti-Racist Baby. It's critical race theory-laden material. Uh, and um, they push the book to be given to ages baby to age three. So 
CRT is objectionable for adults, in my view. Certainly, you know, when we see the military being subjected to the CRT propaganda. Parents are outraged their kids, school-age kids, are being subjected to it. But here we have government documents where they're pushing this Marxist claptrap on babies and toddlers. And it's in the language of the documents. And I'm going to read some of this material because I don't trust you to read it. So I'm just going to read it for you because I know the way life is. You want to hear it read for you. That's a good way to educate. So there's this educational opera. Let's see. So the associate superintendent for the Office of Shared Accountability. I mean, if that doesn't tell you there's trouble afoot, I don't know what does. I mean, will you, where, where do they come up with these titles and or, uh, organizational subcomponents sub for school districts? Shared accountability. I don't even know what that means. I keep on looking at my colleague, Troy, here, and he's shaking his, you know, he's like, I don't know what it means. So she's advising principals about all of these various trainings, including a website for staff, students, and families that highlights ongoing professional learning opportunities for the virtual opening of schools. This is in August of last year. And of course, one of the big deals is equity, which as I've told you is, uh, it's not equality, equity is uh, essentially Marxist. It means everyone must have the same stuff. And if anyone's more successful than someone else, that person has to have material taken away from them and given to the other person. And in school, in the school environment, that typically means that students who are successful and programs that are geared to helping children succeed are to be eliminated. So no one has access to special enrichment. Everyone's equal in outcome, which is the heart of communism. And this is what she says. The professional learning opportunities are grounded in equity and social-emotional learning. Now, uh, we could go on, I guess, I could do another two or three more segments on social-emotional learning, but I have a feeling to say it is to condemn it, isn't it? So I probably don't need to explain it to you. To ensure that equitable environments are established in the virtual and traditional learning spaces. Professional learning opportunities will be updated throughout the year, so please check back. Including in this is t uh, there's an instructional video for teachers on COVID-19 slash social justice. You can imagine where this is going, in which the presenter first instructs teachers how to set up a Zoom classes for students and how to make sure the kids don't say what they're hearing because that's dangerous, as you know. And this is what they say. In a slide entitled, COVID-19 and Social Justice Surrounding Racism, this is the response that's scripted for teachers. We're currently living through a dual pandemic with COVID-19 and the systemic and structural racism occurring worldwide. Did you know that systemic racism is a pandemic? Well, that's what the left is teaching your children. A pandemic is defined by an outbreak of a disease. 
This is what they think of their opposition. Diseased that occurs over a wide geographic area and affects an exceptionally high proportion of the, of the population. As you can see from this slide featuring a Black Lives Matter protest poster, both are affecting lives of people in our community and around the world, part of which we will discuss today. We'll surround facts about COVID-19 and the social justice movement in our country. How is that not politics? How is that not Marxist politics? And this is what I love. They have, they have their little politicos, their little comrades ready to step in if a teacher is, gets out of line or isn't with the program. Please be available to coach and or co-teach with, with a staff member that may not be at a place on their anti-racism journey to effectively teach that section of the, of the lesson. So they don't want anyone who hasn't drunk the Kool-Aid teaching the kids. Again, there's a slide. Some facts about racism and social justice contains a link. Again, there's more material here, uh, more PowerPoint material for, quote, parents. Some facts about racism and social justice contains a link to a video called Anti-Racist Baby, which is based on a book written by Imram X. Kendi, who is a very controversial CRT promoter. Although they say, of course, no such thing as CRT. So just so you know, I, I, I suspect it's just going to be a matter of weeks before videos that allege that CRT is in the schools get start taken down, get started, uh, get taken down, and other posts get taken down by big tech uh, enforcing uh, the communist suppression of free speech in this country. So, uh, you know, I'm going to say it. It's in the schools. We've got the documents, but that's not going to stop them from suppressing the truth. And as I said earlier. The teacher's notes advises teachers that anti-racist baby book introduces youngest readers to the concept and power of anti-racism and says it's the perfect gift for ages baby, ages baby to th age three. So they're pushing this garbage on children. Now, the left says, how could you be against being anti-racist? Because, again, it's a term of art. It's like Antifa, anti-fascist. They think everyone who doesn't share their political values is racist. Or in the case of Antifa, everyone who doesn't share their uh, communist political values is fascist. So when you hear leftists talk about anti-racism, they're talking about revolution. They're talking about America being foundationally corrupted by racism and, needs to, and the system needs to be overturned. But they want to teach that to babies. I don't know. I, I, my wife and I raised a few babies. I, I don't think they would have understood this, but you know, it shows you how crazy the left is that they think babies are going to be reading anti, this anti-racist baby book. I don't know. Maybe some parents would start reading it to them out loud. I don't know. Turning them into red diaper babies, as they used to be called. A slide side, a titled Secondary, a Brief Anti-Racism Glossary, notes systems of oppression identifies inequity by calling attention to the historical and organized patterns of mistreatment. In the United States, systems of oppression, like systematic, systemic racism, are woven into the very foundations of American culture, society, and laws. That's what they think of your country. 
And of course they say they can't out loud of the lessons. They don't want the students not to be taught this brainwashing Marxist theory. Again, COVID-19 and social justice. There's another PowerPoint presentation geared at third through fifth graders, babies. I consider them to be babies. I have a pretty expansive word, uh, a view of that word. People in African-American and Latinx communities, Latinx communities. I know a lot of Hispanics who are offended by that. But the left doesn't care. They just make up terms to separate and segregate people. Have been more likely to get sick from COVID-19 because of how racism and unfairness impacts their lives. What is the science behind that? There's no science behind that. Even given, and, and I don't necessarily give this, but let's say that COVID disproportionately impacts a minority community. Is that because of racism? What's the science behind that? It's pseudoscience. And of course, it's Marxist science. High school psychoeducational lesson. Now, I, again, I, don't, I didn't go through to see what even psychoeducational meant. But like I said, I don't need to hear anything other than the word psychoeducational to know that I oppose it. We want our children to learn how to read, write, What is it? Reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? And to communicate. And that comes with the reading and writing, in my view. But the left wants to shape your child's moral and cultural outlooks to fit their agenda as opposed to the parent's agenda. So this high school lesson for psychoeducational purposes is a link, is, uh, they provide a link to educator and caregiver learning guide from Disrupt Text. Disrupt Text sounds like in, you know, that's communist revolutionary language. For the book titled again, Anti-Racist Baby. In the book, the authors note, to white caregivers and capitalize white like the South Africans would do, racism, Racism is a problem that was invented by white people. Again, capital W, segregationist, apartheid-style language. And it is the work of white people to dismantle it, capital W. The authors add that it is the responsibility of white caregivers to study whiteness. This is racism. You know, and this is not, what they're doing here is obviously an abuse of children, but it is unlawful in the sense that our laws have had 50 years of structure set up to prevent uh, racist, segregationist, discriminatory, hostile atmosphere based on race activities from taking place in our schools. And they're upending all of that.
indigenous black and in people of color, not minorities, but people of the global majority, PGM. Again, they capitalize black. That's the new left communist thing to do. And it's racist. I could go on and on. I just want to end with this. Well, I've got, I've got three more things to say because this stuff really gets me going too. Personal, there's a draft activity included in this records called uh, for an assignment titled Personal Identity Character Sketch. This is really evil. In which students were told to, quote, focus on the intersectionality of your culture and another way you identify yourself, your race, ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation, class, or other identity factor not listed here. So this is what they do, is they try to take personal identifying information about children uh, and misuse it, first of all, kind of pressuring them into potentially identifying on th as things they necessarily don't identify as. So there's this kind of, cr uh, that agenda there. But secondly, using whatever they identify as, very personal to them, as a piece, as a way to leverage uh, their, a change in their thinking on political issues. So the Marxists, you know, they initially focused on class, now they use all sorts of other categories to uh, generate uh, support and energy for the revolution. And that's what they're doing here. By gaining private information from children and using it against them. I mean, I, I incur, I, and, and, you know, as soon as I said it, you know what image popped into my mind? Winston and Big Brother, 1984. It's not Big Brother, but you know, the, the, where they would, the character, the protagonist had personal information used against him to brainwash him for the totalitarian regime of the antagonist. And of course, you know, the left is no fun. So they talk about going to cultural events, celebrating diversity, but that's not good enough because those food festivals where you might actually, you know, taste food you never tasted before from another culture, that's not sufficient because the communists need you to do more. Although these events have the potential to bring people together across differences, they do not have the potential to address injustices such as racism, sexism, classism, or homophobia. So don't go to those food festivals anymore, kids. You may think you're learning about other cultures, but unless there is an extremist agenda attached to it, avoid it. Again, straight, straight out of... I mean, this is like material you would read kind of being parodied in the Soviet bloc from the dissident movement. This is... This is I mean, I'm, I mean, see images of you know, all these dissident novels and books I read. And this is the language. This is, the, this is what was killing people, proponents of this. This is what was killing people in the Soviet bloc, in the communist blocs, and still is in China, for instance. Even charitable giving is found, chari charitable giving is found upon. Now you're hitting close to home with Judicial Watch, right? 
Charitable giving to such organizations as Amnesty International is a route people often choose that will ease their own conscience, but don't want to associate in a deeper way with a particular cause. Even volunteerism is frowned upon. Critical of savior syndrome which it defines as when wealthy kids are sent into the poor neighborhoods to do service learning but never discuss how the relative worth, wealth is connected with the relative poverty of, inhabit, of people inhabiting those neighborhoods. So there you have it. If these kids aren't attacked for, quote, they're privileged and abused by the teachers who are supposed to be keeping them safe from this sort of political ideological attack, that's what they object to. This is what they're doing in Montgomery County, one of the most wealthy, significant, highly educated counties in the, in the world. This is what's being taught. So I want you to keep this in mind when you're told there's no such thing as CRT. That's just the legal movement in the ac academy. The purpose of being taught in colleges and universities was so that it could be pursued in circumstances like this, and I have the proof it's being pursued. And we've got tons of other material here. Judicial Watch is sued. We got, I told you about the Loudoun County documents, which had similar material last week. Again, they, Montgomery County, we had previous documents, anti-racist anti system audit. They had segregated affinity spaces up in Massachusetts. In Rhode Island, they talk about emphasizing collectivism over individualism for teachers. And Lord help you if you object to this. We had a, we were representing a coach, Mike Flynn, Deedham High School in Massachusetts. He was fired from the fo football coach position because he objected to his daughter being taught in her middle school the CRT, Black Lives Matter propaganda. I mean, that whole system was so obsessed with the issue, they wanted to impose it on the football team because they thought the coach wasn't a team player in that regard. So they fired him for exercising his rights as a citizen and a parent to object. We're filing, we have a lawsuit on his behalf, a civil rights lawsuit. So we're not just trying to get the documents out and exposing what CRT is about. And I tell you, we are overwhelmed with parents seeking our assistance in getting these school districts to fess up and give us the documents like we're able to get here. We're happy to help where we can. So I encourage you to reach out to us if you, you're running into issues in your locality. So again, this is what I love about Judicial Watch. We do this great work. We're in federal court. We're trying to protect the children, trying to protect civil rights, trying to hold our federal government to account, all while trying to prefer, preserve our constitutional republic. And dare I say it, there's no one else doing this type of work as well and as effectively as Judicial Watch. And I encourage you to support our work at judicialwatch.org. The left doesn't want you to support Judicial Watch, uh, but I think your nation is best served and will be well served by any support you're able to give to us. With that, I wish you the best, and I'll see you here next week on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. 
Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.